0: Hi, Journey. Nice to see all of you today. I invite you to think about who you could bring to that fall fair uh, this afternoon. Uh, grab a neighbor, a friend, uh, some family members who you know would be uh, served well uh, by that event. There's also still opportunity for you to serve at that event. You can help us set up, you can help us tear down uh, at the conclusion of this evening, and there's more information out in the lobby today about how to do just that. Uh, you saw the fantastic uh, Quint trying to play the xylophone. Uh, Quint is the bass player for the Charlie Hall Band, and those guys are going to be here next weekend leading uh, the music in all three of our weekend worship experiences, and uh, we hope that uh, you will be here for that. We hope that you'll bring a friend to that. Uh, The Charlie Hall Band, we sing a lot of their songs in here. Lots of you don't even know who in the world he is, but uh, we sing a lot of his music around here, uh, and it'll be a really fun, special, cool opportunity to be led by those guys. They are our very, very good friends. They've been around with us really since before we were a church, and uh, so just don't miss that, and encourage you to invite someone along, if you would. I want you to know if you're a guest here today, we're glad you're here, uh, um, though some would say this is a bit of an awkward uh, weekend for you to be here, but i got to be real honest, i rather like it if you're a guest here, maybe for the first time, because I think uh, you'll get a glimpse of who we are as a community today, at least that's what uh, I'm praying in case you're wondering i'm not going to talk with you today uh, about uh, from the message series that we call so you want to be rich as i had intended to do up until early friday afternoon because i and a bunch of other leaders around the life and ministry of journey feel very very strongly that we need to talk about what happens and how we respond when a leader falls what happens and how we respond when a leader falls Some material that a guy named Adam Hamilton, he's a pastor in another state, put together has been an immense resource to me as I've scrambled on really very short notice to adjust to what I think our church and our wider community needs to hear. As I'm sure you're keenly aware, it's been a very difficult week here in in Bozeman, around Bozeman High School and around Journey Church. Jim Evans, who is the accused Bozeman High School head track coach, is a brother in Jesus Christ. He and his wife, Lindsay, are a part of the Journey Church family. Jim has been one of our Journey Church student ministry volunteers. I was made aware very early on Thursday morning by Chris Townley, our student pastor, that Jim Evans had been arrested on Wednesday evening, was being held in jail on charges related to inappropriate contact with students from the Bozeman High School track team, which he coached. The allegations brought against Jim are very serious. What we know is that our legal system will handle those allegations. As of this time, Jim has been charged. He has not entered a plea, nor have those charges reached a final resolution. After I took the call from Chris Townley informing me about what he knew, Chris grabbed his wife, Kate, met me and our executive pastor, John Oakland, over in my office, and we huddled and we prayed, and then we made our way to the Law and Justice Center to attend Jim's initial court hearing. One of the things that we huddled around over in my office was beginning to gather some more detailed information regarding Jim's participation with Journey Church's student ministries. Of course, our primary concern when it comes to your students' involvement with our student ministries is their safety first and foremost. I want you to know that we take precautions to keep your students safe while they are involved in our student ministry programs. We are presently reviewing those measures to verify we are doing our absolute best to provide a safe environment for all of our children's ministries, frankly. Now, some of you are formulating the question in your head right now. You're thinking about asking it at the conclusion of today. Uh, The question, why in the world would you choose to talk about this from the platform this weekend? We've heard a bunch from the media. Isn't that enough? Can't we just sort of let it go and get on with it? It's a really good question, and I'm glad you're thinking about asking it. I'll answer it for you right now, and let me answer it for you this way. By virtue of Jim's role as a leader in our community, as the head track coach of Bozeman's only high school, as a volunteer with our student ministry department, he had influence over literally hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people's, including children's lives. Which means that when allegations like these surface, all of us, every single one of us have entirely more questions than anyone has answers for. That puts we who have responsibility for leading leaders like Jim in the position of making a choice. We could be evasive and cryptic. We could ignore the very large elephant in the room, even in a gathering like this. And we could just try to move on. But we all know, every single one of us know, that something is going on. We've read the newspaper. We've heard the TV news reports. Our students are coming home from school buzzing with the hallway gossip. And by me standing up here and ignoring the elephant in the room, the media and the rumor mill and the gossip channels are what take over. And that's how, quote-unquote, information, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, gets disseminated. And here's what happens. When the media and when the rumor mill and the gossip channels are the primary, quote, sources of, quote, information, and we just continue to ignore the elephant in the room, the news begins to eat away at the communities that are impacted by that news. The rumors and the gossip eat away at Bozeman High School, eat away at Journey Church, eat away at our student ministry department, really quite like a cancer which never allows people who have been hurt and who have been damaged and who have been wounded by the nature of these allegations the ability to heal and work through their grief. By choosing to ignore news like we all learned about this week, our church community, for example, would never get to choose how we respond as a family and as a community because we just can't talk about it. No one can. Which means that when you see people out in the community who may have been impacted, damaged, hurt, wounded by this, you don't know what to say and you don't know what to do because you don't know what they know and you can't talk about it. Which means that instead of a situation like this, ever turning the corner and actually becoming redemptive and healing for the myriad people involved, in all of these circumstances, instead it just becomes more hurtful, more damaging, and you actually avoid... You entirely avoid all of us being able to come alongside the students involved and Jim and Jim's family and Jim's wife and on and on and on and on and on the list goes. You avoid all of us being able to come alongside all of the people impacted by the situation and bear their burdens as we are commended by the scriptures to do. Journey Church is Jim and Lindsay's church family, we are their church. Lots and lots and lots of students who Jim has coached over the years, they too are a part of our church. We are their church family too. The students whose lives have been impacted by Jim's volunteering through our student ministry department are also a part of our church. We're their church family too. And every single one of those people need every single one of us to come alongside of them in these days and bear their burdens but how in the world can we do that if we can't even talk about what's happened? And so, we could choose to ignore the elephant in the room. We could just evade the subject altogether. Or, we could just take the thing head on. We could actually frame the conversation in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we could say, look, here's how we're going to respond. Here's how we're going to go forward into the healing that God actually wants to bring. And I asked Jim and Lindsay for permission to do what I'm doing here this weekend. I asked for their permission and their blessing. I asked Jim's family for their permission and their blessing to do what I'm doing. And when I did that, I told them that I felt very strongly that this would be the most healthy course of action for them, sure, but also for the wider Gallatin Valley community at large as we actually work to get to the healing side of all of this. They more than agreed and they more than understood. Now, some of you were greatly influenced by Jim over the years. Some of you via his volunteer ministry around FCA, perhaps, by Journey Student Ministries. Some of you were influenced greatly by his coaching. Some of you have known Jim since he was three feet tall. You've been cheering him on at track meets for years and years as an athlete. More recently, you've been cheering him on as a coach. And the burning question that so many of you have is, what about that talk he gave that one time that was so impactful to my spiritual walk? What about the counsel that he gave me about how to walk more closely with Jesus Christ? What about the advice that he gave me so that I could jump higher and run faster? What about, what about, what about, what about? Some of you are saying there's, there's all this good stuff Jim was a part of in my life, and now really I'm just entirely and totally and utterly confused, justifiably so. The truth is, and this is the truth, that God uses people when they are at their best and God uses people when they are at their worst. Certainly, God uses them more effectively when they are at their best, but God uses people. There's actually a doctrine developed by the early church called ex opere operato, which basically meant that the sacraments were still valid even if the person who served them was a sinner. And what's true is that God uses all of us in ways that are utterly surprising and utterly stunning, even when we are not at our best, doesn't he? And there there are so many unanswered questions still swirling around the events of this past week. We do not know how all of this will land. But what we do know is that Jim and Lindsay are a part of our church family. And the question is, how will you respond to them if and when they choose to walk in those doors for one of our weekend experiences? How will you respond to them if you see one of them around town or one of Jim's family members around town in the grocery store So on, Will you drop your eyes, make a beeline for the next aisle, and try to pretend that you didn't see them? Or will you walk right up to them, look them square in the eye, take their hand, and say, I love you. I'm praying for you. And that's the question for you. It isn't the question for anyone else sitting next to you or around you or behind you or somebody you're thinking of in your head. That's the question for you, for me, for us. What will you do? And here's the deal, folks. When we started this church just over five years ago now, we did not start it as a country club for all of the perfect people in the world. Not even close. Instead, we started this church as a hospital for sinners. And as I look around this room today, no offense intended, all I see is sinners. All I see is sinners. Sinners saved by the amazing grace of God himself. I don't see any perfect people here today, not a single one, not a single one. And so Journey Church, this is really a test of who we are. This is a test of who we are. Will you keep loving people who sin? It's the test. Will you keep loving people who sin? Because if you don't, if you won't, and I got to say, there's not a lot of hope for any of us, is there? There just isn't. Grab your Bible, if you would, and open it to 1 Timothy chapter 1. There's going to be no verses on the screens. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to open it. We're going to go long today, folks, maybe longer than we've ever gone in a weekend worship experience. Just buckle in. I've got to tell you right here, right now. That notes page I gave you is blank because there's some stuff I want you to write down. None of it's going to be on the screens. I'm just going to ask you to write it down. Because it matters. It's important. None of us are above this stuff. 1 Timothy 1, 15-17. This is sort of the framing verse for where we're going to go. We're sort of going to springboard off of this. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Actually, you can't look at it, so just listen to it. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I... And the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. And so for the rest of our time together today, we're not going to talk about what other people have done or what other people have not done, but rather we're going to turn the microscope right here in on our own hearts, our own lives, and how exactly the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to us and what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. There's really five main elements that will serve as our outline that we're going to talk about today. And these five elements invite us to think about how we appropriate the gospel in our everyday lives you might write these down. First comes temptation. Temptation. Then comes sin. Then comes repentance. Then comes mercy. Then comes hope. Temptation, sin, repentance, mercy, and hope. And all five of those things are really the reality of every single one of our lives, aren't they? And we walk through those elements as we stumble in our walk with God, which we all do, and as then we're restored to right relationship with our Heavenly Father. Let's start with the first element, which is temptation. We all know what that is, don't we? Temptation. It's the allure, it's the siren song, it's the appeal for us to do the thing that we know we shouldn't do absolutely. But even more than that, temptation is actually the allure, it's the siren's song, the appeal to do the things that will actually introduce damage into our relationship with God, will actually damage us at a soul level, will damage other people. Temptation is what will lead to our own personal ship being wrecked. And you know this, that some of the sins that we're tempted to engage in day in and day out, they're just real small sins, aren't they? Very small. So what's the deal if I just eat one more cookie, right? One more cookie a time or two isn't a big deal. But one more cookie a few hundred times could actually lead us to a place of enslavement to food, can't it? Temptation is the invitation to the enticement for us to start down a path we know we should not start down, to do the things we know we should not do, to have the things that we know we should not have, to take the things that are not ours to take. That is temptation at its very core, isn't it? And none of us are ever tempted to do good things, are we? No one ever said, oh man, I am so struggling with the temptation to read my Bible today. No one ever said that. Just like no one ever said, I am so tempted to tithe this week. I just might do it. Hold me back. That isn't how temptation works, is it? We're tempted to do things we know we shouldn't do because we know That thing will introduce damage into our relationship with God, relationship with others, the inside of us at a soul level. And every last one of us are tempted, aren't we? It's universal to being a human being. Christian or not, we are all tempted. It's the want to touch the thing that has the sign that says, do not touch. If the sign wasn't there, we wouldn't care, would we? We wouldn't even think about touching it. But the sign's there, and we're like, why don't they want me to touch it? What will happen if I touch it? It's driving down Durston Road here in Bozeman. The speed limit east of Ferguson is 30 miles an hour. And you want to drive how fast? 35. I live on that street. I know. I see you driving faster than 30. It's driving down Baxter Lane out to the Commons. The speed limit is 40. And you're like, it's a road that goes to nowhere. There's nothing out here. Why 40? 40 how fast do you want to drive? 45, 50, maybe. I know you do that because I see some of you pulled over. (laughs) It's when you're on the interstate and the sign says 75 and you're like 75. I need a round number. I'm going 80. (laughs) Working round numbers. What is it with us that makes us want to do that kind of thing? And temptation is not just a Christian thing either, is it? You know the story of Odysseus from Homer's Odyssey. Odysseus and his men, they're sailing by the island of the Sirens. The Sirens are these magical, mystical sea creatures. They sort of look like mermaids, right? They're known for their beautiful singing voices. The music they made was so hypnotic, sailors stopped sailing their ships to listen in. With no one in charge of the ship, they crashed right into the shore, killing everyone on board. Odysseus and his men, they come sailing by, and to prevent such a tragedy, Odysseus stuffed his crewmen's ears with wax so they couldn't hear the hypnotic sound of the siren's music. He then tied himself to the ship's mast so that he himself would not be able to jump off the ship or swim to shore or do anything else that might endanger himself or his crew when he heard the siren's magical music, and it worked, it worked, they made it by. But that's not really a sustainable model of temptation avoidance, is it? Lash yourself to the mast of the ship. We all deal with temptation, which is why precisely Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Deliver us from evil. To say it another way would be to say it this way, God, please. God, please don't let me fall into the temptation to do the thing that I know will bring damage to our relationship, to my relationship with that person or that person or that group of people. And please, God, keep me from falling prey to the siren song of the devil who is trying to lure me into the very things that will wreck me. And Satan, you know this, has an amazing knack of making the things that will be so painful seem so appealing. They look so good. They are so alluring. So alluring as a matter of fact that they actually become the thing, the things that we most desperately want. We know we shouldn't be in that relationship, or that relationship, or we shouldn't take this thing or that thing, but we find ourselves so desperately wanting it right now, and it's really the foundational story of the whole of the scripture, isn't it? God says to Adam and Eve shortly after creation, look kids, here's the whole of the Garden of Eden, it's all yours. The best all-you-can-eat buffet that you could possibly, it's not a word I know, but I like to say it that way, buffet that you could ever imagine. And there's just this one tree right over here. Just one, just one, just one. Everything else is yours, but there's just this one. Everything else is for you, it's yours, all yours have at it. And what does the siren song of the devil say to Adam and Eve? That's the best fruit right over there, that one tree that God said isn't yours, just his. That's the best one right there. God really didn't mean that you shouldn't eat it. You, You actually have to eat this. And you know the rest of the story. Because their story is our story. We are Adam and Eve over and over and over again. We hear the whisper, the siren song of the serpent saying, come on, come on, right over here. This is what you really want, come on. And I know sometimes we think we can't, but folks, we can resist temptation. We absolutely can resist temptation. There are things, yes, we imagine that we could never resist, but we can, you can The Bible says what? Resist the devil and what? He will flee. It's true. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. He absolutely will. There is always a doorway out of temptation if you're looking for the doorway out. And there are five R's to resisting temptation. I'd suggest you might write these down. Number one, the first R is remember who you are. In the face of temptation, Remember who you are. You, after all, are a child of the Most High God. You were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, shed for you on the cross. You belong to him. And folks, honestly, when I am confronted with certain temptation, I remember who I am. I remember that I am married to Dana. She is my precious wife to whom I vowed my life in the face of some other temptations, I remember I am daddy to Silas and Joshua, Malia, Bailey, Dylan, Preston, and Jasmine. I remember. I remember in the face of some temptation that I am the lead pastor of Journey Church. I remember who I am. In the face of temptation, you must do the exact same thing. Remember who you are, second are Realize, or you could sub-realize with the word reflect, realize or reflect upon the consequences of your actions. I ask people all the time, what were you thinking when you did that? Usually what I'm asking about is some incredibly dumb thing they did that led to a catastrophic train wreck. And the answer every time I ever ask it is the same. I was not thinking. Right? And then I ask a follow-along question. How did you think that this was going to end? The answer is... Every single time without exception, I was not thinking about the end of this. I was only thinking about what was right in front of me right then. The very next time you're tempted to blow it, run it out to its end, would you? Run it all the way out to its end. Will this end good or will this end bad? Will I feel better or will I feel worse? If people found out about this, will I be ashamed or will I be proud Think about the very likely outcomes of your next bad decision, please, please. Third, remove yourself, R. Remove yourself from the situation. If stealing money tempts you, get out of the job that has you surrounded by cash and access to cash. Just get out. If you're attracted to someone at work, build a wall of separation between you and that person. Get accountable to a third party for that relationship. If you cannot break loose, if you keep gravitating back to close proximity with that person, for crying out loud, quit your job if you have to. Maybe for you it's an attraction to your next door neighbor. Honestly, move out of your house. Sell it. Move. Some of you are sitting there right now with your arms crossed saying, come on quit your job, sell your house. Isn't that a bit extreme? You tell me, is it? What's your life as you know it right now worth to you? What is your family worth to you? What is your soul worth to you? Jesus said it this way, very simply. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now that is not to be taken literally. But Jesus is commending us to take the consequences of our sin so seriously that we are willing to do whatever it takes to remove ourselves from the temptation to actually do it. Remove yourself. Next, rededicate. Recommit your life to God. You do it in prayer, really. Maybe for you it's the first thing you do in the morning when your feet hit the floor. Tell him that you're his. Tell him that you need him. Tell him that you want him to strengthen you in the face of every temptation that's gonna come at you because you wanna stand firm for him today. The final R is this one, reveal. Reveal your struggle to a trusted friend. Get up next to someone you can talk to who can hold you accountable, who has an all-access pass to your heart and your life, who gets, understands, dials into your struggle. Back in the day, I had a friend who struggled with looking at internet pornography. It was the days of the dial-up internet. That's all there was. He struggled with pornography. So he had a laptop computer. He popped the little dial-up modem out of the side of his computer, and he gave it to me. And he said, I only want you to give this thing to me when you're here and when I'm using the computer in public parts of the house that we shared together. Maybe for you, it's along those same lines. Maybe you need to cut the internet to your house altogether. I promise you, you can live without the internet at your house. You can live without the internet at your house. Maybe for you, it's getting rid of the computer altogether. I promise you, you can live without computers. People did it for a very, very, very long time. Maybe you need to get rid of the cell phone that has the internet access to it. Maybe you need to get rid of the iPod Touch because you know they're causing you to blow it over and over and over again. Reveal your struggle to a trusted friend. That's temptation. Now let's move on and let's talk about sin. The next stop on our outline. And we know this, that sin is so incredibly destructive, is it not? It is so incredibly destructive. John, in one of his epistles in the scriptures, he says, there is a sin that leads to death, a sin that doesn't lead to death, and I guarantee that eating a few extra cookies is not going to lead to death, but there are indeed sins for which the consequences are utterly devastating, aren't there? God told Adam and Eve, do not eat that fruit because the day you do, and God's saying, and I hope you don't, but the day you do is the day that you will surely die, God said. See, death becomes the metaphor for what happens when we cross that line, when we step into sin. It's why some sins become deadly sins. The apostle Paul writes, the wages of sin are what? Death, the wages of sin are. Our death. And it's not that we physically die on the day that we step across that line. Adam and Eve, they didn't physically die on the day that they ate the fruit that God told them not to eat, but a lot of things did die on that day, didn't they? Paradise, hopes, and dreams of what might have been, all died on that day. And folks, that is exactly what happens to us when we step across lines. Stuff dies relationships get broken so badly, they just cannot ever be put back together. All the hopes and dreams of what might have been, they get smashed and broken when we step across lines. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And not only are the wages of sin death, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none who are righteous, not a single one. We all, every one of us, have that propensity to step away from God's will into the opposite of God's plan for our lives. Which is precisely, get this, which is precisely why there is not a single inch of room for any of us to judge anyone else in their sin. To recognize the sin? Absolutely. To call it out? Absolutely. But to decide that we are going to self-righteously judge other people, there is not an inch of room. There is no place for it in the life of the Christ follower. Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul starts to work through this very powerful passage. He starts out by denouncing people's sin. First, he denounces the sin of atheism for not believing in God, denounces the sin of not believing in God. Then he talks about people who struggle with sexual immorality. And as you sort of start to read down through that text, you can almost hear the sort of amen corner at the church in Rome, and I'm not pointing at you guys back there for any particular reason, it's just where my arm went at that moment, okay? Not saying anything about you, but you can almost hear the sort of amen corner at the first church of Rome, right? They're they're pumping their fists in the air going like, yeah, preach it, Brother Paul, call out the sin, name those sins, right? And then as the text continues to unfold, Paul does something very interesting. He starts continuing to name sins, more sins, like people who envy, people who gossip, people who are disrespectful to their parents, people who want more than they should have, and he keeps going. And you can almost hear it as he gets to the end of that list. The amen corner in the first church of Rome was completely silent, I'm sure. And then he starts into chapter two of Romans, and he says, therefore, you who judge others, beware. Therefore, you who judge others, you beware. For you have no place to judge others, because you yourselves, you struggle with sin. You yourselves, you struggle with sin. And when people who we know and people who we love are accused of some sin or they're found out in their sin, there's this gossip that starts to spread. We all like that, don't we? We like the gossip. Let's just admit it. And it starts to spread, because there's just something about talking about other people's sin that, like... Maybe it makes us feel like we're not quite as bad as they are or something. We're sort of measuring up through the gossip channels. It's what we like to do in the face of other people's sin, being accused of sin and such. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Be oh so very careful with that, please. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Just stop. Just stop. And then the other thing we want to do when people are found out in their sin, when they're accused of some sin... Is we want to cast stones, don't we? We want to cast stones. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, is a section of the Bible that actually circulated independent of the rest of the Gospels of Jesus Christ for some period of time. This story, however, just kept getting told over and over and over again because it was so clearly about Jesus Christ. It was so clearly authentic. It just kept getting told and told and told. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they never did include it in their original Gospels. So in the very early part of the 2nd century, an editor of the Gospel of John said, Look, this story must be included someplace in the Gospels. It is so clearly authentic. It is so clearly Jesus. And so they inserted it into the Gospel of John right after chapter 7 before the rest of chapter 8. It's become known as John 8, 1-8. That's how it came to be. And lots of you know the story. It's the story of Jesus. He's in the temple courts one day and he's teaching. And the Pharisees, sort of the religious elite of the day. They came to Jesus to test him. They liked to do this. The Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, if you recall, they were absolute sticklers for the law. They were dead serious about other people's sin. And really, they saw in Jesus Christ a propensity for him to be very, very soft on sin. That's what they saw in Jesus Christ. They thought he was altogether too easy on sin and sinners and such. You know how in political campaigns sometimes, I haven't heard it lately, but you hear it on occasion. Uh, One candidate will say about another candidate, they're soft on crime, right? That's what the Pharisees said about Jesus Christ. He's soft on sin. They didn't like that. It bugged them. He ate with sinners. He didn't ask them to repent before he would eat with them. He did not denounce their sins publicly before he ate with them. They were frustrated by this. And so they thought, well, let's craft a test for him. And so they brought to Jesus, as he's teaching in the courts of the temple, a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And I don't know, maybe they brought her straight from the bedroom where the indiscretion had gone down. Perhaps she was wrapped in, I don't know. It's not a pretty scene, however it went. And they sort of throw her at the feet of Jesus Christ, right? And there she is, laying in a pile on the floor of the temple courts, terrified. And there's the Pharisees. They've already got the rocks in hand. They're like, loaded up. And they say, Jesus, what are we to do with this woman? Remember, it's a test, right? And they sort of keep going. They're like, Jesus, just in case you don't recall what the Bible says, the Bible says that those who are caught in the act of adultery are to be brought outside the gates of the city and people will take stones and they will pummel the victim to death, pummel them with stones until they stop breathing. That's what the Bible says, Jesus, so what do you want us to do? And Jesus spoke These next words, and you know these words, whether you've ever read the Bible or not, they're so powerful, they're so profound, that they've actually become part of our cultural wisdom, and they were spoken first by Jesus Christ himself. He looks at these bloodthirsty Pharisees with their rocks already in their hands, and he says, okay, the one of you who has never sinned, you what? You cast the first stone, you throw the first stone. And all those guys could do was step back, look at each other, drop their stones, and quietly walk away. And in case you're wondering around Journey Church, we do not throw stones. We do not throw stones. And we're not about to start today. Not even close. Remember, Journey Church was started to gather sinners, of which I am one, and so are you. And our desire is to look at the sinners and recognize the sin. Yes, absolutely. We do not just dismiss sin around here, but also see the mercy and the grace of our God. No stone's journey. No stone's thrown here. Which brings us to the final elements of salvation, of which repentance is a vital part. And repentance is when we've recognized just how much pain we've caused other people, ourselves, God, and we actually set about trying to make things right. We try to communicate the intense pain of what we've done. We feel it. We feel what we've done. We're sick to our stomach. We feel agonized by what's happened. We want to make it right. We understand how truly we've offended God, how truly we've offended other people. We want to make it right. We want to make amends. And here's one of the challenges for people like us, for grace people, like us. We're grace people, aren't we? One of the challenges for grace people is that we can actually move too quickly to grace, folks. We can actually move too quickly to grace. And what happens then is that somebody sins, and when we move too quickly to grace, we don't ever even give them a chance to recognize the consequences of their sin, the consequences of their action, the pain they've actually caused, which causes them to never actually move on to remorse and repentance because we're way too busy saying, come on, just, just come on, seriously, I'm all done. I don't wanna hear any more about it. I just love you, I just wanna give you a hug. Come on, let's just get to the grace party now. We just love you. And think about this in the context of raising children. If every time when your kid does a wrong thing, if you move too quickly to grace, you raise irresponsible people. People who don't understand the consequences of their actions, People who don't understand there are very wrong things and what do they do? They keep doing wrong because they never felt the consequence of their action because we always helicoptered in and scooped them out of it. Come on, let's just get to the grace party. But repentance is important. Absolutely important. Because it actually moves us to the place that we finally get it. We finally understand the pain that we have caused someone else. The pain that we have caused God, the pain that we've caused ourselves. And that's why in our lives, every single one of us, we actually have to come face to face with our sin, the gravity of our sin, what we've done. Yeah, God does offer us grace through his son, Jesus Christ, but he's asking us first to see what we've done, to own it, to acknowledge it, to understand the consequences and the repercussions of our sin. It's been about seven years now, and I'm just now starting to get comfortable telling this story because it is most embarrassing to me. I had a friend. His name was Dennis. He's still my friend. We were in Billings together. I was the executive pastor at Harvest Church, our mama church, and my friend Dennis got himself a brand new Harley Davidson motorcycle. It was awesome. Drove it off the showroom floor, rode it a little bit, put a couple hundred miles on it, insisted that I take this motorcycle from him. I said, no, Dennis, I don't want to borrow your brand new Harley Davidson motorcycle. I have no business riding such a bike as that. He said, no, Brian, you have to take it. I, I travel a lot on business and I just, I just want you to take this bike and ride it, you and your wife, You just take it out and enjoy it, take your kids for little rides on it, it'll be awesome. Take the bike, no, I do not want the bike. One day, unbeknownst to me, Dennis rode the bike to my house while I was at work, put it in the garage, called me up on the phone and said, the motorcycle's in your garage. I said, what? How did you get into my garage? Your wife let me in. I was like, huh, forgot to tell her no. So there's the motorcycle. It's in my garage. He said, I left the key in it. I left the helmet on. it. It's all yours. Just have at it. Have fun. I'm going to be out of town. And it happened to be raining that day. I don't know why he brought it in the rain, but he did. And it rained for a few days following. And so I didn't have a chance to ride it. But then a couple of days later, a day dawned bright sunshiny day. It was a beautiful fall day, kind of like yesterday was. Gorgeous day. And I said, oh, okay. He parked the bike in my garage. I'm going to ride it. He insisted that I take it. I'm going to ride it. And so I went out to the garage. I started it up, put the helmet on, and I made some laps, several laps around the neighborhood, just to make sure I could kind of keep this thing under control, right? it been a while since I had ridden a motorcycle. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go to work now. And so I tootled out of the neighborhood, took a left, and then went up to the stop sign, the first stop sign I came to, like a half mile from my house. The motorcycle has 200.5 miles on it at this point in time. And I sort of stop at this stop sign, and I was like, "Ah, I'm going to turn right here. And so I start to turn right. And if you've ridden very many motorcycles, you know that uh, sometimes on a motorcycle, a turn has the, the ability to sort of fatten out. You know what I'm talking about? They get they get fat. Heads are nodding right now, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm turning right, and, and this turn is getting very fat, so fat that I'm actually sort of starting to head over into the oncoming lane of traffic. And so it's getting fatter and fatter, and I'm thinking, I've got to skinny this up because I think a bad thing might happen here if I don't skinny this up, and I'm trying to lean and turn and accelerate and all these all this things going on, right? And what should be coming in the oncoming lane of traffic but a very large yellow school bus? The turn's getting fatter and fatter and fatter, I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to be able to do about this. I'm thinking to myself, self, you are about to hit the school. Bam! It sort of started uh, about the front tire of the school bus and then just continued along down about halfway down the school bus. Then for some sort of inexplicable reason to me, the, the front tire on the bike stopped rolling and it led to the bike sort of endowing up, launching me forward into the air next to the school bus... I've got a helmet on, right? And this is all, like, like, this is like a video in my head, even now as I tell the story. I'm flying through the air, sort of like this, realizing I'm about to land and hit the pavement. And I land on, like, all fours, kind of like this. Here I am. Bam! Hit the pavement. I put my helmet down on the ground, and I said uh, loud enough so that the bus driver could hear it, This is why you don't borrow people's motorcycles. (sighs) And remember, I'm alongside the school bus. It's stopped because we crashed. And I looked up, and there's all these little seven-year-olds laughing at me. (sighs) Not my finest moment. And so I got up, and by this time, the bus driver has radioed in to bus driving headquarters that she's been in a collision with a motorcycle. Well, right, whoever's on the other end of that call runs that out to a place of, oh my gosh, a bus and a motorcycle collision, this is awful. So she summons every emergency response vehicle, I think in the Yellowstone Valley, showed up. The only thing that didn't come was the help helicopter, thank God. Fire trucks and ambulances and police cars... And I'm a pastor at a pretty large church in town, right? So I know way too many people who are showing up. I'd just like to sort of slink off, but I can't. Pastor, you all right? Yep, I'm fine. Police officers sort of took over the investigation. They launched an investigation to see what had happened. Who's this idiot riding the motorcycle? I Could have told them that. (laughs) Not much to investigate there. He sort of pulls me alongside. He says, Pastor, I'm going to have to cite you. I said, I imagined as much. What are you going to have to cite me for? Well, uh, I'm going to start with careless drive. Yep, mm-hmm, figure that one. And they said, I'm looking at your driver's license here, and I don't see anything on here about a motorcycle. In- mm mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. This is why you don't borrow people's motorcycles. I said, okay, I'll take, take the ticket, and I'll take the laughing. And so after all of that, you know, everybody, finally the laughing children went away, and the ambulances didn't need to treat me. I was, I was fine, my shoulder hurt. But I was fine. And so there I'm left. Everybody's gone. And it's me and my friend's brand new motorcycle with 200.5 miles on it. And I'm sick to my stomach. Oh, my gosh. This thing was destroyed. It is like brand new. Was like brand new. And it is destroyed. It's just a heap I heaped this beautiful bike. It was so beautiful. Now it's like dumb. The forks were bent. That's bad. That's bad. So I, I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? My first phone call is to the Harley dealership. I call them. So I call them and I say, hey, I wrecked my friend's brand new motorcycle. They're like, oh, whose is it? Whose was it? I tell them the name. They're like, oh my gosh, that's like brand new. He just drove it out of here a few days. I I know. I know. <laughs> He said, we'll be right out. So a couple of guys, they come out with a flatbed trailer. And they limp the thing up onto it. And they're like, man, this thing is bad. What would you do at a school? But Yep, I sure did. Sure did. They're like, no way. Yeah. And I just said, guys, whatever it takes, fix it. Like, I don't, I don't care. I live about five blocks from here, and I'm going to go home right now, and I'm going to start listing my children on eBay to pay for the fixing of this. Because that was not a line item in our our family budget. Repairing Dennis's Harley Davidson motorcycle, right? uh, What am I going to do? I said, just get it fixed and I'll get you some money one way or another. So they go and I've got like a few block walk to our house. I'm thinking about what I'm going to tell Dana, certainly. And I'm thinking about my phone call to my friend and it's making me sick to my stomach. I've destroyed his brand new motorcycle. And so I call... And he didn't answer, and I was like, oh, phew, right? I can sort of rehearse this conversation a little more, and a few minutes later, a couple of blocks later, I call again, and he answers, Brian, it's like, Dennis, (laughs) (laughs) how's it going? I said, well, it's been better. He said, ah, it's a great day to ride a motorcycle. You get on that thing. I said, "Uh uh-huh, I have been. (laughs) I was on it. Oh, but that was great, Mm mm-hmm. I said, Dennis, I've got some really bad news. He said, what? I said, I crashed your motorcycle into a school bus. (laughs) And he did what you did. He laughed at me. (laughs) He laughed at me like a guttural laugh. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Ha ha ha, you jokester. And I'm like, no, no, really. Really, and it got real quiet on the other end of the phone at that point. Are you serious? "Uh Uh-huh. And so I start talking. I was like, yeah, the turn fattened up, and there's a school bus, and I crash into it. And, and, and like, Dennis, your, your motorcycle is destroyed, and I am so sorry. I am such an idiot. I blew it, and I'm going to pay for it every dime, every dollar. I'm going to figure this out. I'm auctioning my kids off on eBay to do that. But I'm going to figure this out, and it's just quiet on the other end of the line. Like, oh, gosh, what is he thinking? He's getting furious right now, and he's going to reach through the phone line. You know what he said? Brian, he said, it's just a motorcycle. Are you okay? It's just a motorcycle. I said, Dennis, I'm fine, but it's not just a motorcycle. It's your motorcycle, and I, and I wrecked it, and I'm so sorry. Please forgive me, and I'm going to make it right. I'm going I'm to fix this thing. He said, just stop. Just stop. It's just a motorcycle. I said, I've sent it to the Harley dealership, and they're already starting to work on it. He's like, don't, don't, no, stop. I'm going to call those guys and I'm going to give them my insurance information, and I'm going to turn this into my insurance company, and they're going to pay for it. And you're not going to pay a dollar, not a single dollar, because it's just a motorcycle. Well, then, uh, you know, I'm trying to argue. Like, no, just stop. Stop. That was seven years ago. To this day, I've not given him a single dollar for the repair of that motorcycle. It costs several thousand dollars to fix it. I'm not giving him a dime. And that, my friends is an incredible example of both repentance and mercy, isn't it? Repentance and mercy. It's getting what you don't deserve and not what you do deserve. Our God is rich in mercy. He is abounding in steadfast love. It's who he is. It's what he does. That is the focus of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to save sinners. I am the worst of them all, Paul says. And he says a whole bunch of other things about sin as well. God does. He says, though they are as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far shall I remove your sins from you. This is my body broken for you. This is the blood of my new covenant poured out for you for many for the forgiveness of your sins. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus Christ paid the price that we deserve to pay, but didn't have to. He took upon himself the suffering, the pain, all the ways that we would try to make amends with him, he took it all upon himself on the cross. That is the gospel, that we repent. That he paid a price that he didn't have to pay, and that he offers us incredible mercy. And Jesus offering us mercy challenges us to be merciful friends. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we what? Forgive those who trespass against us. As we forgive those who trespass against us. In the same proportion that we have been forgiven, we forgive others in the same proportion." One day Jesus told a story about a man who had owed his master a great debt. The master demanded repayment. The man begs his master for mercy. He doesn't have the bucks. He can't do it. The master mercifully forgave the debt. The guy who had been granted mercy, incredible mercy and forgiveness, he goes out and he finds a guy who owes him a mere pittance. And he throws the guy in prison because he refused to pay him because he didn't have the money. And you know what Jesus says about that? that man will be judged in the same way that he has judged. He will be judged in the same way that he judged. Because the mercy you show is the mercy you receive. And this is why when we talk about how we respond to other people when they violated God's law, when they have sinned, we remember first and foremost, before we judge anybody, before we gossip, before we call anybody to talk about what happened, we remember how broken and how sinful we are and how much mercy was appropriated to our account, to our lives. We remember that. And Journey Church, days like these, are moments that define who we are, what we are at the very core of our beings. This is a defining moment. And the question that is staring each and every one of us square in the eye is, who are we as a church? Who are we as a church? What kind of church are we, really? Are we the kind of church who picks up stones and throws them at our wounded? are we the kind of people who demonstrate great mercy because we have received great mercy? And all of that lands, the final stop on our outline, it lands in a place of hope, doesn't it? I've thought about it a lot over the last few days, and I've thought if I had the ability to gather every single person who may have been affected by the events of the past few days, every single one, if I could gather them in a room like this, I'd say very few things, but here would be one of them. I'd say, look, here's the deal. As black as this hole seems at this moment, as deep as this pain is at this moment, as absolutely gut-wrenching as this is, this is not a hopeless situation. This is not a hopeless situation. There is always hope. Because God is the God of the second chance. God is the God of the new beginning. And absolutely, yes, there is pain. Yes, there will be scars. Yes, this will be hard. Maybe the hardest thing you'll ever have to navigate in your entire life. There will be repentance. There will be mercy shown. And yes, some dreams have died in all of this. But God will give new dreams, won't he? Because God is the God of the new beginning. God is the God of the second chance. Your best days are not all behind you. You, with God's help, can and will navigate all of this. You will emerge on the other side of this. And yes, God does have great things in store up ahead that none of us even know about because we cannot see them right now. And that's because there is always, always hope. I want to end with this. If you just close your eyes for a brief moment, and I want you to get in your mind's eye the very worst thing that you've ever done. Just get it in your mind's eye right now. The very worst thing you've ever done, the most vile, repulsive action word, whatever it is, get it in your mind's eye right now. Got it? And I want you to ask yourself this question. Would you want the rest of your life defined by that? And just open your eyes up, and I want to tell you something. I am so grateful that my life is not defined by the very worst thing that I have ever done. And in these days, no one's life has to be. No one's life has to be, and neither does yours. Why? Because God is rich in mercy. God is abounding in steadfast love you take your things and set them aside and I just invite you to move into a posture of prayer listening and interaction with God invite you to do that now Some of you right now are in the midst of being tempted. You feel it. The siren's song drawing your heart and your life. You've heard the temptation. It's just right there. Maybe your hand's even on the doorknob and you're thinking about walking through I want to suggest that this, folks, is your day to resist. This is your day to resist. This is your day to remember who you are. This is your day to rededicate yourself to God. This is your day to reflect upon the consequences. If you do, turn that doorknob and walk through that door. This is your day to enlist God's help to stand fast in the face of that temptation. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Would you just write where you are? Would you just talk to God about that? If you're in the midst of being tempted, just talk to God about that. Be honest with him. Acknowledge, God, I need you. I need you. Help me stand firm, stand fast in the face of that temptation. Now, there's others of you sitting here today, and you've stepped across lines. You took the bait of the temptation and you turned the doorknob and you walked through and you know who you are. I don't. It's just a you and God deal. You do. And you're involved in something. You're involved with someone that if it were to become public, if it were to come to light, the consequences would be earth-shattering. And sure, maybe, just maybe, only you and God will ever know about it. But I want to suggest to you that this is your day to call it off to stop it once and for all. This is your day to say to God, I know, God, this is wrong. I choose you instead of that. Maybe this is your day to say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Make me clean. Make me new. This is your day to confess before God. And this might be your day to open your life to a personal relationship with Him for the very first time. And you can do that by praying along with me right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes something like this. God, I'm a sinner. I'm in desperate need of a savior. Would you please God come into my life? I get it. Jesus died on the cross in my place for me to bring me back to you, God. And I repent, I repent. I turn from my sins. I turn from my own path, my own stuff. I'm going your way. God, I want a new life in you. Please give me that new life. And if that's your prayer today, would you just lift your hand right where you are? Lock eyes with me, just right where you are. And yeah, right there, right there, sir. Way to go, the back. And right here, yes. And right there, yes. Back there, both of you. Way to go. And over here, yes. Yes. And back there, yes, yes, right there, yes, and back there, yes, I'm saying yes with you, absolutely yes, right there, yes. You're saying yes to God. I'm saying yes with you. as we close this prayer time could I invite you would you just pray for the families would you just pray for the hundreds maybe even thousands of people who may have been affected by the events of the past week in our community would you just lift them up to God pray God's strength over them pray God's care over them pray God's healing over them on every single person involved just do that And God, we're saying individually and corporately that we're committing ourselves anew to you. And I pray, God, for every single one of us as we battle temptation, as the siren song of the enemy whispers in our ears, that we would be able to identify that voice where it comes from, that we would be able to stand firm, remain steadfast to resist him, to honor you, with our lives, God. God, I know that there's those of us who are here today who have bold steps to take to remove ourselves from situations. Help us to have the courage to walk them out. That we would have the same courage when we pass through those doors on our way out to the parking lot, on the way into our car, on our way to our house, that we feel right here, right now. That courage would convey all the way through that we would do what we need to do. And God, we individually and we corporately ask your forgiveness. Please, we desperately need your grace. We desperately need your mercy. Wash us clean, make us new, make us rich in mercy, God. Make us rich in mercy, just as you have been merciful to us. And we as a community, we need your strength for the days ahead. And we pray, God, that you would grant it ever so generously, please. We love you. We yield our lives to you, God.